possible that we might see record viewing the figures. Having to reduce their advertising outlay as well. Pretty positive for the game. That has increased seventeen percent year on year. Hello and welcome to the AMP, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research, and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four, season two of the AMP podcast. My name is Daniel Gadda, and today I'm going to be talking with analysts Toby Holleran, Annabelle Yeomans, Alice Thorpe, and Richard Broughton. Drawing on our latest research in this episode, I'm going to talk to Richard about our latest data from our Q3 wave of consumer research. Then I'm going to be looking at the impact COVID-19 has had on the pay TV industry with Toby, who has taken a detailed look at the Q2 financial results. Next, I'll speak to Annabelle, who has been doing some research into two major entrants to the streaming market, HBO Max and Peacock. And then finally, Alice is going to talk to us about research that she has been doing in SVOD unscripted formats. So let's start with Richard and our latest Q3 consumer research. So this is the first uh, consumer wave of research that we've done uh, post uh, lockdown. And Richard, I was just wondering if you could take us through uh, some of the wider trends that we, we've seen through this research uh, and what, what, what's that telling us? Certainly. Um, so it's been quite an interesting set of data to get back. And there are certainly quite a few trends and themes that I suspect many people in the industry will be aware of that this data confirms. So one of the points that's coming through quite clearly from the information is that during lockdown, people took out more subscriptions to subscription video on demand products. And they started watching services more while they were stuck at home and unable to go out, um, be entertained via other media. And that behavior has persisted through to the end of lockdown and and out, um, even as some of the the, the harshest restrictions on consumer behavior are, are lifted slightly. So there's been a significant increase over Q1 uh, and indeed over Q3 last year in terms of consumption of online video services. Um, We've seen some of the same underlying um, cyclical uh, or secular trends um, reflected in the data set. So there's ongoing pressure on broadcast TV viewing. There was some speculation during the lockdown period that um, broadcast TV viewing would would be a a beneficiary in at least the midterm from consumers flocking back to linear TV. Um, but that doesn't seem to have been borne out, particularly among some of the younger consumer groups who've, who've just gone straight back to streaming services again. Um, so there are, there are some things that have happened that are um, uh, persistent. One of the things that I would say is that, that that's only happened in a certain few areas. So if we look at the, the sorts of media activities that consumers are engaging in regularly uh, and across the whole spectrum of different um, types of activity, online video viewing is, is up. Um, broadcast viewing is, is, is down very slightly. Um, radio viewing down a little bit, um, gaming is up a little bit, but a lot of the other behaviors are very much in line with what we saw previously. So despite all the changes that consumer behaviors um, underwent during the, the core of lockdown, um, people have begun to relax back into the same consumption patterns around media that, the, that they did prior to the onset of the pandemic. So with online viewing increasing, the number of uh, OTC subscribers also increasing over that period of time. As you say, the viewing and the consumption has returned to pre-COVID levels, but with this growth in subscriptions, do we think that actually some of the behaviours that we saw develop over lockdown will continue? 
Yeah, so um, I, th- I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, really, um, that c- certain trends have been accelerated a little bit. And we can see this in um, some of the, we, we, we've already seen this in some of the financials and some of the um, subscriber figures reported by the, the big streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus. They did really well during the pandemic, and that's reflected in the behavioral data we've been, we've been looking at. Um, what, what I would say is that um, while um, that, that has certainly accelerated adoption of services and there's been a, a bit of an uptick in terms of consumption of online video services, it, it's probably brought forward some of the behaviours that we would have expected to see emerging perhaps early next year. Um, so I, what I would say there is it, I think it's easy to overstate the impact that the pandemic's had. Um, it's certainly been a positive trend for some of the new online video entrants in um, driving faster changes in consumer behavior that would have, than would have happened naturally. Um, but to some extent, um, that's really about bringing forward future consumer behaviors to the here and now than it is about fundamentally altering um, consumer uh, media habits and um, viewing patterns. No, that, that that's really interesting, and I suppose one of the uh, the other bits of, of research that we've done through this wave and something newer that we're looking at, and actually is is very relevant to the new services, is as they're becoming global platforms, localization of content is, is becoming more and more important. And and I know one of the things that you've been looking at in the latest wave has been some of the detail on attitudes towards dubbing and subtitled content, and and the interest around that, which I think will be one of those those important factors for the the international streaming services. Uh, what are the results shown us there yeah so you, you you're quite right there that as um as growth begins to slow in the domestic markets for, for some of the big streamers and netflix is is probably a case in point here it's been around the longest and it's um it's growth is well it, it's really saturated in in north america much of its growth needs to come from international markets increasingly amazon is looking similar um and of course they're needing to to um, develop their um customer bases globally to, to ensure that growth continues over the next few years. Um, a good part of that is around localization of content, and that could be the creation of local local originals so that are produced and, and programmed in the, in, in the markets around the world, or it could be the conversion of international shows to suit um, local audiences, either through dubbed or subtitled um, uh, content. Of course, you tend to see some very different trends around the world with regards to receptiveness of um, consumers to different sorts of content. Um, so some markets are more receptive to, to dub content, others subtitle, some prefer it in the, the original language. So if we take a few examples, um, looking at uh, Scandinavian markets and, and Netherlands, um, broadly speaking, it's fair to say that either audiences there prefer to watch content in the original language or with subtitles. If you look at markets like France, Germany, Italy, they much prefer dubbed content. Uh, and then if you look at other markets around the world, it, it varies a little bit, um, whether they prefer subtitled or, or dubbed. One of the key themes, however, I would say, and this is broadly universally true across territories, regardless of whether they prefer tend to prefer dubbed content or subtitled content, is that the younger consumer brackets tend to favor either content in the original language or subtitle content, while the older consumer brackets tend to prefer dubbed content. Um, and that's largely going to be due to 
cultural exposure, so younger consumers are typically more exposed to uh, US, maybe UK content, and the, the obviously the advent of the internet and growing up with a, a, a you know world at your fingertips naturally inclines people to be more receptive to um, to different language content. Um, of course. Um, there are other uh, other elements in terms of the sorts of programming that's being targeted at different groups. So if you look at a lot of national broadcast channels, um, they're targeting um, programming at slightly older groups in, in national and local languages. Um, so lots of really interesting trends there. varies very much by market, but hopefully that brings out a few of the broad um, broad themes. Yeah, thank you very much, Richard. That that was all really interesting to hear. And I, I know that we'll be drawing out more of this consumer research as we start to to dive into it a little bit more. Um, so thank you. So now we're going to turn our attention to the pay TV industry. And uh, I'm going to be talking with Toby, who's been taking a look in detail at the Q2 financial results, uh, which has been giving us a clearer picture on the impact of COVID-19. So Toby, after looking at these results, um, what are these showing us? What can you give us a bit of an overview? Well, um, just to preface slightly, so essentially what we've done is we've taken a look at some of the largest um, pay TV companies worldwide, which actually um, regularly publish um, results, either themselves or the um, local regulatory body. So what we've actually seen is uh, among these companies, which represent, um, it's around 80 companies, which represent about just over 50% of the world's pay TV subscriptions. We've seen an overall 3.1 million net additions, which is a combination of around um, 7 million net additions among the companies which saw growth and around 3.9 million losses among the companies that saw losses. So if we think about this on a market level, where where has this growth been been mainly coming from? Somewhat unsurprisingly, China, the, um, the world's biggest market, which is still um, developing a fair bit on the internet side. So there's a growth of IPTV services. And interestingly enough, the um, the growth in China, the net additions in China were 3.1 million, which is pretty much bang on the 3.1 net additions we, that we saw worldwide. So remove, kind of removing China from the equation, um, we, we can see on a kind of lower level where, where all of this, this growth is coming from. So this one includes Spain, um, which is um, the incumbent Movistar, so its um, largest number of net additions since 2018, and also in France. And, and one of what these two markets have in common, really, is the increasing prevalence of IPTV infrastructure. So again, a case of when um, broadband customers are then bundling TV services alongside those subscriptions. Other markets that are also seeing growth is Russia. So Ross Telecom saw 160,000 net additions in Q2, which is more than triple what it saw in Q1. Um, and additionally, um, we're, seeing, we're seeing a bit of growth in Romania as well. So, so they're some of the best performing markets. And, and as you said, not, not all countries, not all markets saw growth. So which were some of the countries that were worst hit? And you know, what, what are some of the reasons for this? So two, two, um, two neighboring markets, um, geographically in a way, is Australia and New Zealand have both seen declines. So in Australia, um, Foxtel, the incumbent TV operator, has um, particularly struggled due to the, partly due to the lack of sports. So um, year on year, they've actually seen around 200,000 net, uh, net commercial um, TV losses, which accounts for around 10% of their overall subscriber base. Whereas in, in New Zealand, um, Sky is the, 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 the sole pay TV operator. And that's been declining fairly consistently since 2015. But um, but for these companies, they're, they're in kind of a good position as well because they both actually have their own OTT services. So Foxtel has Foxtel now, and Sky has um, Neon. And more um, a bit earlier this year, it acquired Lightbox from the incumbent telco Spark. So what, while there may be decline on a on a pure pay TV level, these co- these companies may may also be seeing growth when you actually look at their combined paid video presence. 
So then um, similarly to what we saw in Q1 is that there's a, um, the US has seen quite a lot of losses. So if we, if we actually look at the four previous quarters combined across the, the bellwether companies that we, that we use for this particular piece of analysis, we've seen a loss of 6.3 million subscriptions. So for example, similar to Foxtel, which has been suffering slightly because of commercial, Dish was particularly um, hit in Q1 because of commercial uh, subscriptions. So what it did as a gesture of good faith is um, allowed um, subscriptions to be paused for around 250,000 subscriptions. However, in Q2, some of these have been returning to their um, services. So um, 45,000 of these um, have come back. However, the um, residential subscribers have still declined. So while there's been 45,000 restored subscriptions, there's actually been 40,000 residential losses. So overall, it's a growth of 5,000, but those commercial returns may not really be completely hiding the bigger picture there. And uh, another um, another markets which are also being affected are Brazil, which were, were kind of s- stuck out in Q1 additionally, as well as Canada. So um, that's on a similar path to its um, neighbor in the US. And if we look at the four bellwether companies in Canada, which include Rogers and Bell, this, their, their combined losses in, Q, um, in Q2 were the, the largest, the second largest it's ever, they've ever seen as a combined entity. So, um, so what, we, what we might not actually notice about quite a lot of these markets that are particularly suffering is that they're, they're primarily English-speaking markets. So, um, so in addition to these, there's also been Denmark, which kind of ties into what Richard was saying earlier about how these, um, how Danish people and those in Scandinavia are quite fond of watching content in their native language. So quite a lot of these consumers are in a position where the content that's being pushed out by the global streaming giants, particularly um, primarily English speaking, is really accessible to these markets. So, um, so that the ability for a consumer or the kind of law for a consumer to then begin switching to these streaming services is particularly strong. Thanks, Toby. So looking ahead to the third quarter, what what are we expecting to see here from, from a pay TV perspective? We've seen we've gone through a very tumultuous time at the moment. Um, but what could what does the Q2, Q1 results uh, tell us for sort of the end of uh, 2020? Well, obviously, there's a lot of kind of speculation as to what might be happening with lockdown, etc. Um, in all different markets around the world. But if we look again, similarly, by removing some of the world's most populous markets, so India, China and USA, what we would expect is on a similar level where some of those more emerging markets may continue to see growth. And in some of those markets um, where the core cutting is well in place, such as um, Denmark, the USA, Canada, we expect that will continue because as con- consumers increasingly take up services. So um, o- overall, I would expect that um, removing India, China and the USA by the end of 2020, overall subscriptions won't have changed too much from what, where they're at now. Thanks very much, Toby. And that actually brings us neatly on to our next section, uh, if we're looking at sort of the growth in OTT uh, that we've seen during lockdown, we've also seen the addition of, of two new major platforms enter the market. Two of the high profile are HBO Max and NBC Universal's Peacock. Annabelle, you've been doing some research in this uh, in this area. And so for firstly, looking at HBO Max, what has your research found? Yeah, so our latest wave of consumer research has shown that in the first few months after its launch, around 8% of US households reported having access to HBO Max. This puts it only one percentage point behind Apple TV's current position. So that indicates a fairly steady start for the service. It also launched during lockdown, so production on a lot of its originals, such as the Friends reunion, have been pushed back, but it seems like pushing ahead with launch during the pandemic was a good choice for them. One thing that I think is worth considering with HBO Max is that it's offered at no additional cost to many who subscribe to its premium channel. So that's likely to have been a key driver in its initial success. 
So Peacock is the second platform that you've been looking at. And similarly to HBO Max in the US, it's offered uh, free with Comcast. So how does Peacock compare with HBO Max? Yeah, so Peacock is slightly newer than HBO Max. I think it launched in July, whereas Max was in May. But the data indicates that 7% of US households already have access, which suggests that they've also had a fairly good start. Um, NBC's coverage of the Olympics was due to air on Peacock, which would have been a huge draw for subscribers and a great way to promote the service. They also had commissioned several sport documentaries, which would have worked nicely off the back of the Olympic coverage. So the postponement of the Olympics could have been a setback for them. But having said that, given that it only launched in July and our field work was in August, they say it's been a fairly good month for them as well. And towards the end of 2019, we saw some other major platforms launch, Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. And, you know, we've been able to see how they've grown over the last six months. What does that tell us? And how do HBO Max and, and Peacock already compare to the launches of Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus? Sure. So Peacock and HBO Max were slightly newer than Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus at the time of our survey. So while the time frame isn't completely comparable, as a benchmark, we can see that the new services are a little behind where Apple TV was after launch. Um, 11% of households reported having access in the first few months for Apple TV. Uh, both are a long way behind Disney+. Plus. We found that almost a quarter of households had access to that in its first few months, which really shows the strength of the Disney brand and the wide appeal of their content. I think their popularity as a brand means that they have been in a very strong position, despite the number of SVOD services already in the market, which makes them a very high benchmark for other services launching in the market to be able to meet. Yes, as you, as you say, there are a lot of new services in, in the market. So thinking about HBO Max and Peacock, who are their key audiences, uh, drivers for, for each of those services? What do they have to concentrate on to generate those subscriptions? So for HBO Max, we found that their subscribers are 50% more likely than average to be aged 25 to 44, which reflects the demographics of their premium channel. And given that 75% of HBO Max subscribers also subscribe to the premium channel, it's not really a surprise that there's kind of some overlap there. Uh, similarly, Peacock skews towards 35 to 44-year-olds, but NBC's Univer NBC Universal's broadcast channels skew towards older age groups, suggesting that Peacock's been um, fairly successful in converting those younger age groups. The data also shows some differences in income between the two services. So 69% of HBO Max's subscribers have a, a household income of 51000 or more, compared to 54% for Peacock. And that's likely to be down to the pricing strategies for the two services. So... HBO Max is costed at $14.99 per month, and Peacock has three different tiers, starting with a free one, making it kind of much more affordable for those um, lower income groups. So I think moving forwards, original content is going to be key for both of the services, with HBO Max needing to broaden its subscriber base outside of its um, existing core audience, while Peacock's going to need to prove to subscribers that moving up the tiers to access its full catalogue of originals is going to be worth paying for over the free service. Absolutely. And, and these are two companies that we will definitely be watching very closely to see how they progress. And sort of to pick up on, on, on that last point there and, and moving on to our next segment, creating a competitive content offer has always been key to the success of the major SVOD platforms, developing broad slates of original content across genres, across scripted and unscripted platforms. 
Now, this is an area that Alice has been researching, specifically the commissioning of unscripted formats by the biggest asphalt players. So, Alice, just uh, turning to you now, for unscripted formats, you know, if we're thinking about that for the, the SVOD players, which regions and countries have they been focusing on? Um, well, so unscripted is, is um, an interesting sort of area to think about in terms of um, the SVODs, simply because obviously Netflix has a, has a bit of mileage on uh, some of those newer platforms that Annabelle was talking about there. And they've really been the trailblazer in terms of uh, unscripted commissioning and particularly the commissioning of unscripted originals. Um, This is something that they sort of trialled back in 2018 with a couple of their own uh, original format concepts, Um, notable ones such as their kind of answer to the the Great British Bake Off, which is a sort of a disaster baking show called Nailed It. Um, And that's something which they... they, uh, rolled out to, to different territories, um, which I'll talk about a little more um, uh, later on. But um, really, they're trying to they're entering a market which is increasingly saturated in terms of the kind of content that linear broadcasters are pushing out at the minute. Obviously, unscripted has always been a, um, a kind of a, a strong point for the linear broadcasters. Um, and in the past few years, with the rise of the SVODs, we've just seen a, a, a continual growth in the amount of new unscripted shows being commissioned um, at these linear providers, simply because it, it previously it gave them a bit of an edge on the SVODs in that the likes of Netflix were still experimenting. Um, over the past sort of 18 months, uh, the top 10 biggest importers of unscripted formats, so countries which have taken... Um, format concepts from uh, uh, originally developed in other countries and remade them in their own territory. Um, seven of those uh, were actually in West, were Western European countries, uh, and really it is Western Europe where the formats are. We're seeing some of the the biggest growth in the the, the number of remakes coming out. Um, this has been accelerated by COVID. Um, it, there was a definite spike in countries such as Germany and Spain. Uh, in July uh, this year, um, as we kind of came out of the uh, came out of lockdown, and we're beginning to sort of feel the impact of that lack of scripted content. A lot of the uh, broadcasters, the public broadcasters, and the commercial broadcasters rushed to commission um, format shows, which could kind of fill the gap, but also which were um, sort of re- reliable properties in that in that sense. Um, so there's a lot of competition going on in the market at the minute. Um, and that's a sort of a crowded market for the SVODs to enter. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of thinking about that in, in cutting through that noise and, and looking at sort of the popularity of, of of these different formats and genres, which are proving to be, you know, the, the most popular. Um, well, reality remains the most in demand. Um, I think it's something like 60% of uh, the sort of the, the um, format remakes over the past 18 months were in the reality genre. But if we dig down and look at sort of the the, the secondary genres, the subgenres, the most commissioned subgenre is actually still the game show, um, surprisingly enough, and that's really something which has been driven by the um, by the linear commissions in particular. Um, but we're, we're we're seeing again and again, it, it, even more so post uh, this lockdown experience, um, linear commissioners turning to tried and tested formats um, to to sort of. Uh, keep hold of their audiences. Um, Master Chef, the classic cooking show, that's one that's still going strong. The Masked Singer, Korean format, which is a little more recent, has definitely been going, uh, doing particularly well. But a lot of new kind of uh, uh, opportunities for 
especially South Korean and um, Japanese format producers, um, because there's something of a specialty there in terms of the um, Japanese television landscape in particular for um, physical game shows. So we're seeing a lot of new formats coming out of there. Um, Nippon TV has been developing some things with Red Hour Studios. So there's a, there's a lot more sort of uh, exporting of formats around the world going on. Um, but yes, apart from the game show, which we've seen a resurgence of, uh, definitely, even with some sort of classic uh, game shows like Family Feud coming back in new territories, uh, surprisingly, um, post-lockdown, I think there's a, a people are relying on a kind of family-friendly content, hoping for that boost from the from the lockdown experience, which I think a lot of providers were hoping would push people back to linear. As Richard was saying at the top of, the top of this uh, discussion, that's not really been borne out, but I think there's been a lot of commissioning in hopes that that would be borne out. I'm not sure how long those are going to be going to be lasting uh, now. So. Well, I know that I definitely started watching more game shows over over the lockdown period, so I'm, I'm glad to see some of that commissioning coming back. Um, I sort of want to turn our attention to, to Netflix, and you know, one of the things that we've all seen is Netflix investing increasingly in original formats. And you described their global commissioning strategy uh, recently as cut and paste commissioning. Are you able to expand on this for us? Yeah, so um, what I really mean by that is that Netflix is is now beginning to invest in its original unscripted formats on a more um, industrial scale, if you will. So um, cut and paste commissioning, um, they've basically been beginning to produce carbon copies of their original format concepts for different territories. So what we've seen here with shows uh, like Sing On, which is a, a reality singing show, which is a new re- uh, re- recent release over the summer, they've taken um, the same con- uh, concept and uh, pushed it out to different countries. So there's a, a Spanish version of that, there's a German version of that, and an American version of that. But they've really taken this a step further in the fact that they're now sort of leveraging their what they, what is becoming a global studio infrastructure for them um, in order to c- keep costs down and really sort of push out... Um, carbon copies of these formats which are localized and specific to different territories um, and sort of fill that need for the kind of localized content which we were discussing earlier so with the case of sing on for example um that though there were three versions of that show one in spain germany and one uh, american version they were all actually uh, filmed on the same set in the uk um and so they each version has their own uh, host, um, uh, a well-known face from each territory, um, their own contestants, but they were all sort of shipped in for the duration of the filming. Uh, they use the same set and the same core crew, um, and it can easily be duplicated in that in that sense. So I think we're going to be seeing perhaps Netflix doing a lot more of that in the future. Uh, I think it has its eyes on becoming something of a, a global format factory, whether it can really um, sort of push that to... Um, complete success uh, we're not sure obviously there's a lot of um, uh, differences in terms of from territory to territory to how they respond to localized content as we've been discussing um, that's definitely an interesting avenue though yes and as, as you say netflix are developing global content becoming a global uh, producer of content and and i think that means that they're going to have to think about their strategy in a global way, but also keep it potentially specific to different markets. Now, if we think about sort of the release strategy 
uh, for its unscripted content. Um, does it adopt the same um, release strategy or is it is it changing them for different markets? What does that look like? Well, something I think is quite telling is that Netflix have now started um, experimenting a bit with that sort of release timetables when it comes to these unscripted formats. Um, obviously, as I said, it's something which has been a linear specialty traditionally, um, and it, it, obviously it's something which is sort of favoured as, as event television, as you were. Um, that might sound like something of an outdated term now, but it, it's it's still a sort of a, <laughs> the television industry golden egg, as it were. Um, it's something which all uh, providers kind of uh, dream of having, that that one show which brings in the maximum audiences and becomes a sort of cultural talking point. Um, and I think Netflix really has been striving for something like that. But uh, previously it has been following its, its same sort of um, the same sort of release strategy um, for its unscripted as its uh, scripted content. So dropping everything at once, um, everything's bingeable. Um, and while that has worked very well for Netflix for certain types of show, um, I think they're they're starting to see the benefits of holding off on some of these releases. So, uh, an interesting case in point is their uh, reality dating formats. So, in uh, in twenty twenty, they've released a couple, um, which was sort of their second and third forays into this sort of space. Um, the first show of this kind was Love Is Blind um, that came out in February this year, um, and this was the first of Netflix's unscripted formats where they really experimented with the with the release strategy in a way which um, paid dividends for them. So um, instead of dropping all the episodes of the show at once, they um, released, uh, I think, five episodes one week, five the next, and then had a, a grand finale in the final week. Um, and just looking at the sort of top 10 data that we've been digging into, uh, the show actually really benefited from that in that it became, it was the second uh, most popular show uh, globally on the platform in its finale week um a subsequent show uh, compare that to to too hot to handle another of uh, netflix's new forays into the reality dating realm um that show dropped all uh, dropped completely at once uh, there was no sort of experimentation with the release strategy and uh, while it did well it didn't quite reach the sort of heights of audience response uh, audience responses um, love is blind achieved so um, i think that's something we're going to see Netflix doing more of in the future. Thank you, Alice. Yes, Netflix experimenting and, and adapting to being the global company it is. Well, I'm sure we'll see more iterations of of how it's going to develop its own content and, and its release strategy. And it will be interesting to see if the new SVODs like HBO Max and Peacock follow suit. So that concludes today's episode. Uh, this is episode four, season two of the AMP podcast. I'd like to thank all of the analysts for their insight. Uh, we'll be back in a month's time with more analysis, data, and our take on the latest trends. Thank you for listening. Thank you.